I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's 2023. How? How has this happened? Of course, you could be listening to this anytime. 2024, 25, 26, who knows? But right here, right now, it's 2023. That just blows my mind because we're creeping up to a year of when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer. That will be in February. That will mark the year. Yeah, I feel so many different things as we're getting closer to that date, but mainly how I just don't know what time is anymore. Like people have asked me so often, what does it feel like, like the fact that you're nearly a year and like, has it gone quick? Has it gone slow? Like, how would you describe it? Honestly, I don't know. But what I do know is that this podcast has just been an incredible record for me, an incredible sort of memoir But now where it's at, now we're in season three, and this season has been all about regular interviews every week, I'm learning so much. You know, I'm just so grateful to my guests for coming on and for teaching me so much. So again, this week, I have a really clever guest. It's my second guest from the Institute of Cancer Research this season. Today, I speak to Trevor Graham. He's the Professor of Genomics and Evolution, and he's also the Director of the Centre for Evolution and Cancer. I'm struggling a little bit here to explain what he does because, to me, it just feels completely mind-blowing. He is trying to understand how cancer itself actually evolves in the body. I mean, he obviously, he looks at it when it's outside of the body. But it's like he's really understanding cancer's behavior and cancer's ability to evolve. It's kind of is mind-blowing because, um, well, I'm not sure I'm really... (laughs) I'm really the person to explain it. And so let's hear from him and he can do that. I feel like we're one big happy family, me and Talking With Cancer and the Institute of Cancer Research, because I've got an amazing guest today, Trevor Graham, who is the Professor of Genomics and Evolution and the Director of Centre for Evolution and Cancer at the Institute of Cancer Research. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Katie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Really excited to talk. Oh, it's lovely to have you. I feel so lucky that I've got access to you guys. And I know when I spoke to Paul about that, you know, I feel so sort of eternally grateful. He said, well, actually, it's quite useful having you as well, because it's quite useful having that two-way conversation. Do you feel the same? Yeah, absolutely. I feel that I always learn a lot about you know what it means to have cancer and and what it means the impact of our research or, or what we hope the impact of our research could be 
get a much more uh, clear insight into that from talking to patients and and thinking about how to communicate what we do to the wider public more generally. Mm, must sort of bring it to life a bit, I suppose, as well yeah, for yeah. you. Absolutely. It can be easy for it to be abstract in our lab, but of course it, it never is abstract and every reminder we have of that is really valuable and important. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to talk, obviously I've mentioned Institute of Cancer Research, I talk with them quite a lot off the podcast as well. I know you've joined, we talked about how you were incoming director, but you are firmly now at the Institute of Cancer Research. You joined earlier this year, didn't you? I did, yeah. I'd just be interested to hear how that came about and, and what you were doing up until that point, if you don't mind. Of course. I moved to ICR along with all the brilliant people in our lab here in March of this year, so March 2022. Previously, I was at the Barts Cancer Institute, which is associated to Queen Mary University of London, where I led a lab looking at cancer evolution there as well. And so we moved over what we were doing to ICR because we felt that there were lots of new opportunities here to expand and to do additional things in our research and new opportunities to do more and better research. Oh, I see. So you sort of, you took what you were doing there and you brought that over to the Institute of Cancer Research pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. So the way the research works is we have um, research grants from different organisations to fund what we're doing. So I had some grants in the lab. We brought those grants with us and carried on doing those projects. And since moving to ICR, we've started to, to do new things as well that fit very well with the wider goals of the Institute and along with the hospital here with the Royal Marsden too. So in a nutshell, the Centre for Evolution and Cancer... Well, no, there probably isn't a nutshell you can put that in. <laughs> but, I mean, are you the future? Is that what we're talking about, really? Well, so I think evolution is a really good way to think about how cancers develop and, and how they may evolve, say, resistance to treatments. And because it's such a good way to think about it, I think the way to think about it, it also shows us lots of opportunities of how we can try and make things better. And so I feel that the centre here that I direct, the Centre for Evolution and Cancer, is a, it's a really important thing because it's about this fundamental process of how cancers grow and how they evolve the ability to spread around the body and to evade treatments. And so it's really important that we study that fundamental process because it holds the clues to improving outcomes for patients. So how do you study that? Like, what are you literally doing day to day in a lab? Yeah, well, all kinds of things. So evolution's fundamentally about change, how species, say, change across time or across the world. And when we're talking about cancer, we're interested in how cancers change, both as they evolve from benign disease that's localised in the body to advanced disease that can spread around the body, metastasis and grow in different places, or disease that can evade treatment, and so to go from benign to more aggressive disease is an evolutionary process, and we study that directly. And so the kinds of things that we do in the lab are to take samples from patients' tumours. We will go and meet patients and consent them to be part of our studies and then collect material when they have surgery, take it back to the lab. And then we will analyse it in the lab using tools like genomics, where we sequence the DNA of cancer cells 
and then we use tools from mathematics and from computation to make sense of all of that sequencing information that we collect and try and piece together a picture of how that cancer has changed over time. The real challenges we face actually is that we're interested in studying cancer evolution, we're interested in studying how cancers change over time, but very often we can't measure that directly. We can only measure at a single point in time, which is when the patient donates their tumour to us at the, the point at which they have surgery. So we only have a single point in time when we can collect data. And so the challenge for us is to be able to reconstruct what happened over time, to fill in that movie, if you like, when all we have is a snapshot of our data. So we have a photo when we want the movie. And that's why the mathematics and the computation is so important to us. Because on the computer, we can simulate what we think is happening in the tumour through a computer simulation. And we can ask if that simulation actually matches the data that we observe at, in that snapshot from a patient's tumour. And so that's the way we get the movie, is by trying to reconstruct it on the computer. Are you talking about literally reconstructing what's gone on inside that individual's body? Yeah. In that case, how do you take into account external factors and environment and behavioural change? We would love to have a complete picture. We'd love to be able to take that snapshot and wind back and know exactly what had happened at every moment in time. And of course, the goal then really is not to be able to wind backwards, although that is very useful. And I'm sure you can imagine lots of uses for that information. But really, we want to be able to project forwards and know exactly what's going to happen next so that we can say, treat patients with that anticipation in mind of, of knowing what the cancer is going to do next. That's the goal of it. And of course, we can't do that yet. We can't get a complete picture of what's happened in the past, but we can start to get a good idea about what's happening. The reason we don't get a complete picture is we have to make models in the computer and any model that you make of a process is always a simplification of that process. And so sometimes the simplification means that it doesn't entirely represent the truth but we hope that we make the right simplifications so that the picture we get is a good enough description of what's going on to let us really understand how that cancer is evolving and i guess the other thing that comes to my mind is sort of you know how do you create a kind of mass response or assume a mass response from one individual like and one biopsy <laughs> yeah of course well that would be a dangerous thing to do with we wouldn't want to assume that everybody's the same and we yeah. all know in our day-to-day -day lives how different we all are and you mentioned already today the different exposures people have different lifestyles different diets all kinds of different things and so that our approach is both to try and make measurements on lots of different people to try and be able to take into account all those different sources of variation and and make sure that they're well accounted for in our in our work but also one of the the powerful things that making computational models do is that we can make models for every person so one of my colleagues in the US describes it, who does similar kinds of work, has a, a motto, which is that every patient should have their own equation. Uh, mm -hmm. I like the idea behind that, that we can have a model that we can calibrate to specifically an individual person, an individual person's tumour, and be able to make predictions that are very relevant just for them. Yeah, that's the dream. <laughs> I suppose why I'm 
I'm so sort of struck by this because, of course, I thought so much about what caused my cancer. What was it that turned on the ROS1 gene? Because I learned that every fetus and newborn has the ROS1 gene and then your body doesn't sort of need it anymore. And then something turned mine on. And I guess that's what I'm trying sort of getting at with these questions, really, it's, it's like, oh, will we ever know that? You know, can you ever look at that under a microscope or on a computer and know what it was? And I suppose, why do I want to know? I can't change it, but, you know, maybe it can help other people out there. What do you think about that when it's epigenetics and really trying to pinpoint what the cause was. I know that's not really what the medical experts are trying to do, is it? They're trying to look at how to treat it and how to deal with it. I think it is fascinating just from a pure scientific perspective. You know, we want to understand, you know, I think all scientists, all probably all people want to understand how the world works. And, and there's a very personal example of the turning on of the ROS1 gene in your tumour there. And it's a fundamentally interesting question is how did that happen and of course it has implications for preventing cancer and presumably also for for treating cancer so I totally understand the motivation for the question and I also share the interest in it at least from this scientific perspective I mean I I hope we we can get there these kinds of methods that I'm talking about trying to trace back how a, a cancer evolved by looking at the DNA of that cancer and epigenetics we should talk about what epigenetics is i think yes please (laughs) be my guest Um, (laughs) i'm happy to these approaches of yeah looking at the dna and looking at the changes there and making computer models of how those changes are most likely to have happened will give us real clues about those first step in what made the cancer grow in the first place so I think it's very much possible that we could understand in the future, you know, those first steps in initiating a tumour. And then, of course, use that knowledge to take steps to prevent those first events happening. So, Mm. yeah, totally, it's a good goal to have and I think could be very achievable. I would love to unravel that mystery. Yeah. One day. Totally understand. Yeah. Mm. So epigenetics, because I've talked about it a lot. Claire and I, in the early seasons, this was me and my friend Claire just having a chat every week. <laughs> we would try to explain epigenetics, but I think we did it quite badly. Can you explain it, please? <laughs> well, I think epigenetics can mean lots of different things, but I think a useful definition is to think of epigenetics as changes to the DNA, which don't change the sequence of letters in the DNA. I think most people are familiar with the DNA as being a sequence of letters and they're arranged in ways that spell words, words in the DNA as being genes and then, you know, particular sets of words together, particular combinations of genes make sentences and we can think of those as programs that the DNA codes for tells ourselves what to do by running a particular set of genes and running a particular program with that analogy we can imagine that changing a letter in the dna which we call a mutation can change the gene the word and therefore change the meaning of the sentence and, and make the cell behave differently and so that all makes sense but epigenetics is about other changes that can happen to the dna which can change the meaning of words or change the meaning of sentences but those changes happen without changing the letters in the DNA code. 
And so I think it's a really useful analogy here is to think of the DNA like a piece of string. Now, my analogy of the DNA being a sequence of letters is very abstract. We have letters, but they exist in space. They exist on the fable helix that, that is a physical thing, which is inside cells. This double helix is in every cell virtually in our body. And to get it in the cell, it's a big, long piece of string. So it has to be tangled up. It's effectively knotted and looped and twisted to be able to get it inside the inside the cell. And it turns out that where those loops are and those knots in the DNA is really important and actually controls how you would read a sentence. So to go back to this analogy of words and sentences, if you imagine your DNA is all knotted up, then the words and, and sentences inside the knot, you can't read because they're in the knot. And that's just the same for the cell. The cell can't read the words inside the knot, so it can't run the program, the, the sentence that those words and are inside the knot whereas um in an unknotted region of the dna of course the cell can read the letters there it can read the words and the sentences there and can run those programs and so this physical tangling and knotting of the dna is is one aspect of epigenetics and is a kind of the aspects of epigenetics we've really focused on in our own research so i actually have what's called the ross one fusion i've never really I mean, Paul and I discussed that a little bit. What does that mean? I've always just assumed it's sort of like a mix of a few, a few things, but mainly a Ross one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very accurate. Um, it, it is indeed a mix of a few things. So it, again, it's, it's the idea the DNA is a physical thing. So these genes, you know, these words, if you like, in the DNA, they exist in a physical location in the genome. You know, this, this bit of the DNA over here is where the Ross one gene is. It's not over here. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about translocations, it's when that word physically moves where it is in the genome. So you might um, concatenate two words together. So you can imagine how that changes the the meaning. You you would go from being, say, a cat to being a catch if you move the, the cat to just the right position. But ultimately, because that is perhaps like the dominant gene that's turned on that's what is being treated for me right yeah so that's the that word is being shouted over and over again by your tumor so stopping it shouting changes what that tumor is about um, yeah focusing on that treatment and so what i've always been told from the off is that and this is exactly your study of work this treatment will work up to a point and then the cancer will resist the treatment does that mean that the ROS1 will sort of start to come on again? Because I take on Trectinib at the moment. That is in the form of a pill. I take two small orange pills every night. And I know that those are sort of shutting off the ROS1 gene, which is what the cancer is feeding off or living off. So the cancer is shrinking as a result of the ROS1 gene, no longer there to feed it. We don't know when that might stop working. It's an unknown. I always wonder and obviously worry about when it does. Like, how will I know? Do I just have to wait for my next scan? Will I feel different? Will the side effects stop? I don't know if that's something that you look at as well. But ultimately, it just learns. And don't tell me cancer's clever, Trevor, because I hear that all the time. (laughs) I don't want to hear that cancer's clever. But ultimately, does it just get used to the drug? Is that kind of what happens? 
I don't think it is clever, you know. I don't think cancers are clever. And I think our language is actually wrong here. We give the cancer an agency, like it's smart and it learns right. its way around the That's drug. why I don't like that. I don't like calling it clever. Thank you. Oh, wow, you're the first <laughs> person that said that. Professional. Had... Right. Yeah. <laughs> the cancer has no agency. The reason that the drugs stop working after a while is because the cancer evolves. So the, a cancer is made up of many different cells and every cell is a little bit different in the tumour to every other cell, either because that cell's got some different mutations to different cells. As the tumour grows, the cells divide and mutations keep accruing in the, in the tumour. And so every cell has different mutations. And also these epigenetic changes, this folding of the DNA and other things also keep changing as that as that tumor grows and as the cells divide and make make new cells. And so it may be that within a tumor that once it's been growing for long enough, that one of those cells will have evolved, you know, which means it got lucky and changed its DNA or its epigenetic DNA in some way to make it resistant to the treatment. That's why the treatment stop working after a while it's not because the tumor is smart it's because it's got lucky right um, okay but then so where you're looking at new treatments that are not going to enable cancers to get lucky or, or how does that even work because i i know that there's more treatments coming out and there's more treatments being trialed and looked at all the time of course but the main aim now is to find something that won't ensure that the cancer becomes resistant to it. So how does it stop the cancer from evolving or from, you know, like you say, getting lucky? There are lots of different approaches here, and I think it's one of the most exciting areas of research and where I think some of the, the most exciting progress will be made in the next few years. So there's lots of different strategies. I think one of the most mainstream ones is to try and find new treatments that it's really hard for the tumour to evolve resistance to. So if you imagine that the tumour exists over here and it's with its particular pattern of DNA changes and it needs to be over here to resist the drug, you can make that distance. It has to evolve through very far so that it's very unlikely to, for the cancer to be able to evolve on that, that trajectory. So that, that's one approach. But... An approach that I'm personally very excited about is about trying to use evolution against a cancer. So to try and treat tumours in a way to not allow them to evolve resistance to a drug. And so ways to do that are to think about giving treatments in slightly different ways to make it much less likely that resistance will evolve. I'm happy to to tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, you, please. I'd love you to. If you like. So, so one approach that we're really excited about, and in fact, we're just starting a clinical trial for patients with ovarian cancer, is called adaptive therapy. And so adaptive therapy is based on this maxim that I think we all know in life that nothing comes for free. That there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think <laughs> cancer cells also don't get a free lunch. And what I mean by that is that if a cancer cell becomes resistant to a drug, that being resistant to that drug usually comes at some other cost to that cell. So it's maybe really good at not being killed by a particular cancer treatment, but it's probably worse at doing something else as a result. 
And it turns out that it looks like in some circumstances, cells which are resistant to particular treatments are much worse at growing. They possibly need more resources and they certainly seem to grow slower than other cells which are resistant, sorry, which are sensitive to that drug still, which aren't resistant. And so there's a trade-off between a cell not being killed by a drug, but then being quite rubbish at growing and being a, a tumor cell in the first place. And so adaptive therapy, these ideas of using evolution to fight cancer are about trying to exploit that trade-off that cancer cells have to make between being drug resistant and being a good, effective cancer cell, a cancer cell which is good at growing. And so our idea in the clinical trial, the first person to suggest this was not me, it was a really brilliant um, scientist and clinician in the US called Robert Gatenby, who first came up with this idea of adaptive therapy. His really radical idea that we're carrying on with is to um, use a lack of treatment as a novel form of treatment. And so if you imagine there's this trade-off happening between cells which are sensitive to the treatment and and cells which are resistant to the treatment but grow quite slowly you can imagine when the treatment is applied you kill the sensitive cells off but the resistant ones can keep growing and then the interesting thing is if you think about what could happen when you take the treatment away then the sensitive cells can grow quite quickly and repopulate the tumor and they'll probably outcompete those resistant cells and all cells need um, resources to grow they're all microorganisms that need um, nutrients and they need oxygen and so when the sensitive cells are growing they're taking away those nutrients those, that oxygen supply from the resistant cells and so possibly those resistant cells then can decrease in number they can be killed off because the sensitive cells are growing back and so kind of remarkably the idea is that you can use drug holidays treatment holidays as a novel form of treatment to resensitize a tumor to that treatment and make the tumour evolve against resistance to remove resistance from the tumour. And so in our clinical trial for patients with ovarian cancer, we are reducing doses as rapidly as we can, down to possibly no dose at all, with the idea that we can maintain very long-term control of the tumour with a single drug. And so kind of paradoxically, we hope that in our trial, the outcome will be that we can use less drug less often and have better outcomes for patients. I'm nodding a lot because when I had my surgery, I was taken off on Trectinib for a six-week period. And when I spoke to Paul about that, Paul Huang, he was like, often it can, I know it's different what you're describing with ovarian cancer and my situation, but he said that sometimes that can have more of an impact when you come back on it. And I said, it's a bit like intermittent fasting where, you know, what you hear about and read about is that's a really good way for your cells to replenish as the period that they're not being fed. Is it a bit like that? Yes, I think so. It's because the tumor is always evolving. And if you change the direction that's useful for a cancer cell to evolve in, you can make it evolve in a different direction. And yeah. then when you reapply the treatment, that new direction it's gone off in is means that cancer is maladapted to that to that treatment. So, so yeah. in these trials with ovarian cancer, what is the treatment like? Is that a dose of medication? Is it an injection? How would you yeah, describe that um, treatment? It's chemotherapy. Um, right. And we carefully monitor. The trial hasn't started yet. It starts early next year. We will carefully monitor 
how much tumor a patient has and give them treatment as they would normally get and then if they respond well to the treatment they'll get less treatment next time and we keep reducing it if they keep responding well and then if they respond not so well so the tumor starts to grow back they would get more treatment again so we adapt the dose according to the response always trying to use as little drug as we possibly can how many people will enter that trial i think i should double check the numbers but okay um, Roughly, when you do a trial, roughly how many people do you want so to partake? This is a phase two trial, and I think it's for 80 participants. And so they're randomized to have the regimen of treatment that they would normally get and standard of care versus our adaptive experimental regimen. And how long a period do you need that trial, phase two trial, to take well, place? I hope we'll be able to see the results quite quickly. I expect after a few years, we'll have a really good sense if the adaptive regime works or not. This has been a trial in the US, which is much smaller. I think it's it's for prostate cancer with, with a drug called aparaterone. And there, the, the numbers of men are, I think, around 15 people in the trial. And so, again, they've had adaptive dosing in this trial, and the results there are, are really striking. The overall survival has been doubled compared to standard wow. of care by giving less treatment and less often. It really is amazing. That's so. really interesting. And I know trials are a huge part of cancer treatment. I had no idea of that before I was diagnosed or, you know, was in this world. One person that I interview on the podcast actually is in a Ross One group. That's how I came across him. And he started a trial 10 years ago. Wow. And he's doing really well. He's got lung cancer with the Ross one, which is a much more common than with than seeing it with thyroid cancer. But you know, so if people listening or someone with ovarian cancer listening, like what if they want to find out about this trial? Where you know, this was something I wanted to ask you actually, just a, a bit more of a broader point. Like, how do you make sure that all of this up-to-date information is getting out to your medical partners and practitioners that then it's getting out to the patients obviously I have a background in PR so I'm interested in that side of things as well how do you get it out there yeah I mean it's definitely a challenge I think I should be better at it I mean I don't think we as a lab and me as a scientist we do enough of it but I mean we do try so I think you know talking to you is a great opportunity to yeah definitely communicate about research and these you know opportunities to participate in these trials and we should do more so through the as we've been putting together this trial the trial is led by my colleague um, professor michelle lockley who's at bart's cancer institute where i was before i moved to icr she is an oncologist herself and so as she led the setup of the trial she worked very closely with patient groups both locally and, and nationally to explain the idea behind the trial and to see what people's reactions were and you know to check that this sounded okay to people because obviously if it is not okay then the trial can't go ahead and that's super important because this of is course, a trial to try probably and support go through, people yeah various yeah. checks to make sure that... indeed and then there's all the formal approvals and licensing and regulations and all of that and that's also essential too but i think some of the most important things that really shape how the trial is put together is working with the patient groups because it helps you realize the practicalities of doing these things and, and what what people want and what's important so as well as ovarian cancer am i right to say you specialize in bowel cancer yes we work mainly in bowel cancer yeah 
And why was that an area of interest to you? It's not a personal story. I, I sort of I feel like maybe <laughs> it would be easier to talk about if it was a personal story, but I, it's a disease which is which is really interesting. I find that our bowels are slightly taboo to talk about. No, they, let's but... <laughs> talk about them seriously. I, you know, we talk about so many taboo subjects on here. <laughs> I want any insight you've got into bowels. <laughs> well, people don't like talking about their bottoms, I find, and certainly not about their poo. And um, but the bowel is an incredibly interesting organ. Essentially, we have a new bowel every week because of the rapid turnover of our cells that make the lining of our, our bowels. I've never heard that before. That's amazing. We grow a new bowel every week or two. And so the biologist in me finds that fascinating. So if we think about how all the cells are working in our body and the amazing control that has evolved to make our bodies be able to regenerate at that incredible rate, you know, it's just fantastic. The the kind of biology that must be going on inside our bowels and so it's a really interesting thing to study and then of course cancer is when those amazing mechanisms when something goes wrong and where a, a mutation in the dna changes how a cell is behaving and lets it escape from from that normally exquisitely perfect regulation and so cancer is a window from a research perspective into how our bowels work um it's that interest in in what goes on inside our bowels that really, really got me started here. Wow, you don't hear that every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know like there's been a lot more awareness now with bowel cancer, thanks to the amazing and late Deborah James, the yeah. bowel babe, and various other people actually coming up in the, in the public eye. While we're on that subject, would you mind sharing what symptoms people might need to look out for or how to... Yeah, how, how to consider just checking in that department in their poo. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. carry on talking taboo and talk about the poo. Well, I think the, the main ones are change in bowel habit and blood in the poo. And if people have those things, they should certainly go and speak to their GP as soon as they can. In the UK as well, from I think it's from age 50 now, there is a national bowel cancer screening service where people receive a poo test in the post, um, which is a very sanitary thing to do, where they collect a small sample of their stool and, and post it off. And the test actually looks for blood inside the poo. You know, if you're very sure it's not in your poo, then you don't need to worry. But I think if you were in doubt and it was a persistent problem for you know more than a day or two, then it's definitely worth going to talk to the GP. I think it's always better to be safe than, safe oh, yeah. than sorry. And the GP is not going to have any embarrassment about talking about, about your bottom. So, But the fact that that's going to be implemented as a way of screening over 50s, is that because it's very common? Is that because if it's caught early, it can really help with the sort of prognosis? Yeah, all of those things. So... Sadly, the prevalence of bowel cancer in younger people is is growing, and we don't actually know the reasons why. It's a it's a scientific mystery, obviously a very important thing for us to try and figure out. And certainly, yeah, if we catch bowel cancer early, it's incredibly treatable. So the cure rate is is extremely high. So really good to catch it early, and a real incentive to to participate in those screening programs when they're offered. Right. Okay. Good. It's been so wonderful to chat to you today, Trevor. Thank you so, so much for your time. You're welcome, and um, Katie. for Thank sharing you. all your brilliant insights and knowledge and 
Wow. It's, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to, well, there's a lot that you're uncovering every day and it does excite me because I do think it's changed so much, hasn't it? The world of cancer and treatment for cancer. Yeah, it's changing very rapidly and these new ideas about how cancers evolve and our insights that we can get from the DNA, I think making it change ever more rapidly is the technology and our, our ways to make sense of all that data are just ever growing and growing so rapidly. Well, thank you for the work that you do. Thanks so much for talking to me today. It's been lovely chatting to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Take care. Fascinating stuff. And who knew that you have a, basically have a new bowel every week or every few weeks that your cells sort of replenish themselves. I didn't know that. But I think he makes really interesting points. I'm really grateful as well that he talked about potential symptoms or how you can sort of send your poo off and get it tested. I mean, why not, right? It's quite interesting, actually, because I... I realise that, like, I'm so in this world, you know, I'm so in cancer. And it's still something that's really daunting and scary for lots of other people. Of course it is. I mean, I'm not just talking about, you know, people out in the world. I'm talking about people really close to me. The reason I say this is because something I've wanted to do for ages is go to see a genetics expert. And I think I might have mentioned on this podcast a professor at the Royal Marsden called Professor Roz Eels. And she's someone that my oncologist mentioned a long time ago when I said, you know, I'd really be interested in speaking to someone about my genetic makeup. And I know I won't be able to to uncover what turned on the ROS1 gene that caused my cancer. So it's not like I could have done a genetic screening and found out I was going to get thyroid cancer. In my case, and is often the case, and it's down to epigenetics, which I've talked about, something turned it on. So no matter how I was living my life, no matter what genetic makeup I had, nothing could have predicted this. But... My biggest worry, and I've talked about having some side effects, which may be symptoms of something else, and the worry around that is discovering that I have another cancer somewhere else. And I think that that's probably a very normal concern for someone like me with cancer. And I hear lots of stories about how people are being treated for one cancer and then quite far down the line they discover another cancer I know like for some people that's because they're being scanned regularly but in certain parts of the body and they may have a tumor that's appeared in a different part of the body where the scan wasn't looking at their body the other thing is that scans only show up certain size tumors so a pet CT scan, which is where you have radioactive dye. I've had a couple of those. It's not the same as having radioactive iodine. It's a dye specifically to show up the cancer. Those scans show up tumours that are three millimetres and above. So they're already that size. 
the CT scan, which is where you have contrast injected, they show up tumors that are one centimeter already. So if you think about it, you know, if you have got a cancer developing, it might not show up that obviously. And of course, for me, it's about if that is the case, I would want to catch it as early as possible. So I went to see this amazing woman, Professor Roz Eels, and she sort of explained that, you know, because of my family background, so she took some of my family history, there is my father who had pancreatic cancer, and that was a long time ago. So back then, they weren't testing genes in the same way that they do now. So we don't know if that was caused by a mutating gene. There is also the Ashkenazi Jewish side on my mother's side. And that's a community that's been found to have commonly the BRCA gene. And the BRCA gene is something that can show up in breast cancer. So she kind of explained quite a lot around genes and cancer. And she took some blood. And I'm not going to lie, this test is an expensive test. Okay, I'm paying £400 for this test. But to me, it's like a no-brainer. It's like, think of all the money you've spent on your Christmas presents this year. If you turned around to those loved ones and said, listen, guys, instead of buying you all a present this year, I'm going to put that money towards getting a genetic blood test instead. I think they'd understand. Or what if you put away £20 a month? You know, I think that what we often do is we say we can't afford certain things when it comes to spending money on really valuable things for ourselves. And to me, this is one of them. So I have had that blood sent off to California. And in nine weeks, I will see Professor Eels again to have a follow-up consultation with her. And, you know, I've told this, I've shared it with a few friends and they've said, what happens if you've got one of these genes? And the truth is, I don't know. Like, I don't know, do I start treatment? Do I just get more screening in those areas? I'm not quite sure. I'll let you know. But yeah, it's funny because I sort of feel like I'm being proactive this time. And of course, what I'm hoping is that nothing comes up and, you know, I'm dealing with one cancer. That's quite enough. Thank you. But it definitely feels empowering to think I'm doing something. It feels good. And when I suggested to my husband that he could perhaps have this test, I think it threw him actually. And I think he thought, you know, how would he cope with getting news that he didn't want? And it's funny, isn't it? Because that goes back to my point. Like, I'm so in this that, you know, of course I'm scared of that being an outcome for me. But I'd rather know. And I think that for other people, that's not the case. You know, maybe they'd rather not know. So that's something that I've done this week. But I also had my follow-up appointment with Dr. Kate Newbold. And there were no scans. So it's not like she can look at the disease and tell me how it's responding to treatment. But what she can do is look at my bloods, which all look good. 
the good news is also that my calcium is going up. So it's now at 2.2. Now that is obviously on the medication, but it's definitely a good sign that it's gone up from where it was. It was hovering below and around the two mark. So I've reduced taking the calcium. I'm taking less of those effervescent fizzy tablets, which is great because it's not that fun really having to take those with every meal. And then Kate always sort of has a feel around the neck area and she has a feel at where I have two small cancerous lymph nodes on my left collarbone. And she's sort of had a feel and said, oh, they feel pretty stable, pretty unchanged to me. I just can't tell, you know, I feel them regularly and I kind of think, have they gone down? They definitely haven't grown and that's a good thing. So yeah, that felt really positive seeing Kate yesterday and seeing that, you know, on the whole, everything looks good. I've got a slight increase in my TSH levels and I have to be really honest, I can't really get my head around all the different thyroid blood levels. But what she's done is increase the thyroxine a little bit on alternate days. So I now take 175 on one day and I alternate that between 150 on the next day. And that's fine with me. I seem to tolerate that quite well. So, yeah, I think that it's been an interesting week, actually, with both of those appointments. But I continue to feel good and well, and that's a huge relief. So I'm thrilled about that. This week, I have got a voice note from a lady called Paola Mara, and she got in touch as people are doing, which is just great. And she sent me her voice note and I'm gonna play that for you now. I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer in 2017. It was stage one, grade two, ERPR positive, hair negative. I had eight months of anti-hormone treatment, then a lumpectomy, then five weeks of radiotherapy, then a further four some years of anti-hormone treatment. Then in 2020, I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, which is a totally new cancer and not related in any way to my breast cancer. Although my bowel cancer was actually first, they just didn't find it because during early stage breast cancer treatment, they don't scan your whole body. And if they had, they would have found a tumor in my colon. Anyway, so in 2020, I had many surgeries, a resection, I had an ileostomy for eight months. I had chemo, I had emergency surgery because I had a complete blockage, lots of complications, lots of ER visits, lots of dehydration, just lots of problems. And then I came through that and I had about 10 months where I was clear. And then in, well, actually a year ago, yesterday uh, in November, I was getting a lot of pain um, and it was confirmed that the bowel cancer had spread to my ovaries and I had something called Krukenberg tumors which are very rare in colorectal cancer and incredibly aggressive and the outcomes are usually pretty bad. So then I had high pec CRS and a radical hysterectomy which has left me with all sorts of problems and again I've had emergencies and infections and all sorts of stuff. My last scans were clear it doesn't mean I'm still not stage four. It just means that at the moment they can't see any cancer. It's spreading through my blood, so it will return. And I'm just living three monthly scan to scan. That's me. Thank you. Bye. Gosh, Paola, that 
is pretty full on, isn't it? It's a lot to go through. My goodness. Of course, this is relevant in this episode while I'm talking about sort of discovering or keeping on top of your whole body. You know, that might not even be a secondary cancer diagnosis. That might be a different illness that pops up. You know, I've talked about even things like going to the dentist, you know, just keeping on top of your health. The interesting thing is, you know, what you say about where scans take place in your body, depending on where the cancer is. And of course, it seems to make sense, doesn't it? If you have breast cancer, you get scanned in that area. But what about the whole body? And again, this is something I know it will be an expense for the NHS. I know that it's something you'd have to make demands for. But I think it's worth doing. And I think, again, this falls under that self-advocacy that I've talked about. Ask when you go for a scan. Ask if you can have a full body scan. Paola, you know, that must have been absolutely devastating for you to find out that you actually had cancer elsewhere and that it had been there prior to you discovering the breast cancer. But of course, how were you to know? You sound like a pretty brave warrior. I've been called that too. So welcome to the club. And um, thank you so much for sharing your story. If you have a cancer story, if you've been impacted by cancer in some way, it might even be that you almost had a diagnosis but didn't. You know, that's a story in itself. Please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And I think it's really great that I'm building this community of voices with cancer because each story will resonate with someone. And that's a pretty powerful thing. You could email me hello at talkingwithcancer.com or you can go to my Instagram page, which is talking underscore with cancer. And it's been great to have you back this new year. I hope you all had a good new year. I look forward to speaking to you guys next week where I interview a death doula. Emma Clare, who is at the End of Living Death Doula UK organisation. It's an amazing chat. I really recommend it. So I will see you guys then. Bye. <laughs>